everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And we are back. It's still a pandemic. Yep. Civil rights are still being challenged, and people are still fighting back. Mm-hmm. And Faculty of Horror is back. We're back. We're back in the vault. Yes. It's nice. Thanks for bearing with us. Uh, we did the best we could. You know, given the choice between postponing the podcast or whatnot, doing it remotely was the right decision, but I'm happy you're back. And I'm happy to be back. And I'm happy to be back in the vault. I'm happy we're in each other's bubbles so we can do this safely. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm happy to be wrapping up our summer of plague. I'll be happy to be wrapping up this summer. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I never thought I'd say that. It's end of July and I'm done. I'm over it. Whew. And so in this summer of plague, we have tackled outbreak. We have tackled lockdown. And now we're going to talk about cures uh-huh. or supposed cures. Resolution. In one direction or the other. Things that kind of happen that dictate a potential new way of life. Yes. And these are two films that are going to talk about this situation in really, really different ways. Yeah. Um, And I know both films gave me a lot of food for thought. And I have many feelings about these resolutions because it's really, really tricky when we come to the end of a seemingly huge life-altering thing. And how do you go back to normal? Well, the answer is you don't. There is always a new normal, and I think humanity is a big fucking hard time with new normals. Yes, indeed. I think that we're on the precipice of a whole lot of change, and um, things are looking pretty grim from where I'm sitting, but uh, I think it's really interesting that we can look back on these two films. You know, Mimic came out in 1997, Girl with All the Gifts is more recent, but well before this pandemic, and still see a lot of really meaningful ties to what's happening. And speculative fiction like this is exactly exactly that, is it's speculative. It allows us to speculate on potential outcomes, potential attitudes, and I think there's things that we can learn from them, and we should. I think that's a great place to start this discussion. So, without further ado, let's dive in. This is Guillermo del Toro's 1997 film, Mimic. Strickler's disease came to New York like a thief in the night. It was deadly, threatening to steal an entire generation of our children from before our eyes. Since it has proven to be virtually immune to chemical control, we had to find a new avenue of attack. We recombined DNA to create a biological counteragent. We call it the Judas Breed. Three years ago, a team of brilliant scientists found a way to stop a deadly disease. Now, the cure they created has taken on a life of its own. So you think your little Frankenstein's got the better of you? There's some weird shit here. Lots of it. They all died in the lab. But you let them out. Evolution is a way of keeping things alive. Sometimes an insect will evolve to mimic its predator. A fly can look like a spider. A caterpillar can look like a snake. They are breeding. Whatever it becomes, it destroys. Peter, these are lungs. Yesterday, it became human. If that thing has been around, how come nobody's ever seen it? I think we have. You see the stars of that thing? 
changed its DNA. Survive this. Mira Sorvino. Jeremy Northam. Josh Brolin. Charles Dutton. Giancarlo Giannini. F. Murray Abraham. Mimic. grapples with an outbreak of Strickler's disease, a generation of children is threatened until Dr. Susan Tyler develops a new form of insect, the Judas breed, to combat the disease's carrier, the common cockroach. The Judas breed are engineered to only last one generation, but three years after they are released, terrifying large versions of the bugs begin to appear in the subway systems of New York City. They have gone unnoticed because they have learned to physically mimic their prey, us. Susan soon finds herself trapped in the subway system with her husband Peter, police officer Norton, and Manny, a subway shoe shiner who is looking for his charge, Chewy, who the Judas breed have taken. They come up with a plan to wipe out the colony, and in the process, Norton and Manny are killed. Susan saves Chewy and is reunited on the surface with Peter having destroyed the Judas breed. I saw this one in the theater. I actually have a vivid memory of, um, you know when your parents have close friends and their friends have kids who are around your age and you wind up hanging out with them Mm -hmm. and you don't really want to? Anyway, I had one of those and we went to see this movie and when we went to buy tickets, they were like, oh, it's uh, it's adult. It was something like that. And so we bought tickets to another movie and I remember the friend saying, oh, well, like I wanted to see this one too. And I'm like, fucking kidding me? We're going to see Mimic. Like once you're in, you just go into the different cinema, right? So I did didn't know who Guillermo del Toro was. I didn't know his pedigree. I didn't know anything about Miramax, about the Weinsteins. I just thought I was in for a spooky creature feature. And I walked out of it uh, pretty underwhelmed, and I didn't remember much of it at all. And then years and years later, I wasn't working with Rue Morgue yet, but, you know, I was interested in horror, and I was a bit more up to speed, and I was aware that it had a very troubled production, and that Guillermo del Toro had released a director's cut with additional scenes that, at the time promised to fix everything, and Rumorg screened it. And so I went to that screening, and I was like, oh yeah. But again, kind of promptly forgot everything. And even coming back to it, I had that same kind of feeling of, oh yeah, this. Like, I've seen it. It just didn't touch me. It didn't resonate with me in a way that stuck with me. So now that we've unpacked it, I have feelings about it. Um, Strong feelings, predominantly negative feelings, but uh, I won't forget it again. We'll put it that way. And I have a, I guess, kind of an opposite view of Mimic because it's kind of like a bit of a blind spot for me in the sense of I just grew up with it. Okay. Um, So I can't even say whether I think it's really good or bad. Uh I just, it's so enmeshed in my like childhood. And the reason it was enmeshed in my childhood is because my dad actually worked for the Canadian distributor of it, Alliance Atlantis. Uh And one of the perks of his job was every month they would give every employee like the big VHS release. That's how (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, we had like the VHS of Goodwill Hunting and a couple other big ones. And yeah. then there was the VHS of Mimic. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was one of the few like tactile VHS I had in my possession that was horror. Right. So it just was like, I just fucking put it on. Yeah. Put it on all the time. Let's just oh. fucking watch some fucking Mimic. So you know this film 
So well. I know this film well. Okay. And I've not seen it in a long time. I remember the buzz when the director's cut came out. I mm-hmm. think I couldn't make that screening. I do remember the buzz about it. I couldn't make it. Um, so for this watch, I was actually able to get a hold of the director's cut, and I watched that. Okay. And it was so pronounced in my mind, because I could actually, like, quote along with the movie. No shit. Like, it's, like, th- this is who I am, essentially. Well, I'm glad, because I, I wouldn't have picked it for this episode, based on what I remembered, but it works. It it's totally perfect, fits. yeah. And um, before this film, uh, Guillermo del Toro had made Kronos, and it was mm-hmm. based on the strength of that, that Miramax and its subsidiary Dimension Films, which made Scream and Halloween H2O, and a hugely successful Hellraiser f- sequels, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, brought him on to direct this version of Mimic, which was going to be part of a trilogy of a bunch of weird kind of short films. Yeah. But then those the other two films kind of fell away, became their own things or not things in one case, and Mimic became its own standalone thing, and it was going to be a big deal for Dimension. Dimension in 1997 was hot off the heels of Scream that was released in late, late 1996. So, you know, even when this was in production in Toronto in 1996, there was, you know, some buzz, some sense of like, this should be something. Mm-hmm. And I think before uh, Harvey Weinstein was outed as a horrifying monster, yeah. there was always a notion that he and his brother Bob, who ran Dimension, were bullies. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of talk about the tension between them, the kind of uh, one-upping that they wanted to do. One of them always wanted to be more successful than the other and the way they kind of combated. And it kind of came to a head with Mimic. Good old insecure white men mm-hmm. ruining everything. And this is Guillermo del Toro's his first North American production. You know, let's try Hollywood. Let's give this a swing. And it was a nightmare. It was a horrible experience. He had blowouts with Bob on set. Welcome to Hollywood. I think I read that he even swore that he wouldn't come back. Obviously, we're so glad that he did. But it's a shame. And I find this film to be a mess. I have some evidence that unfettered Guillermo could have made a better film. I don't know if I would have liked it as much, but uh, but we'll get into that. Um, shot in Toronto, as you mentioned. And, like, there were several creature features out that year. I've got Starship Troopers, which I know you love, The Relic. But, yeah, this one came out, and uh, as I recollect, it wasn't a huge hit. It was kind of in the glut of these creature features, and it was very much of its time, but it didn't really do what Miramax wanted it to do, much less what Guillermo del Toro was hoping it would be. No, and one of the most fascinating stories I've ever read about Mimic comes from a book that I believe I've mentioned on this show before, Down in Dirty Pictures by Peter Biskin, and it's about the kind of rise of indie cinema in the 1990s. So he really deals with the Sundance Film Festival mm-hmm. and Miramax. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole like few pages dedicated to Mimic in this book. And it stems from, you know, Guillermo came in and he had a bunch of really cool ideas, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about. Um, and I think I would have preferred a bit more. But, you know, they kind of got to a place in the shooting script that he collaborated on and they were in production. And as you would do, you would send your rushes to the studio and they would review it and just kind of check up on you, especially if you're a newer, younger director. Mm-hmm. And Bob Weinstein was watching the rushes, and he was calling them, saying, this is shit, it's not scary, I don't like it, I don't like it. And he flew up to Toronto to fire Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Called him into the hotel room in Toronto and just said, you know, this isn't working out, we're going to bring in someone else to finish it, and, you know, you need to go tell all the actors that um, you're leaving the production. Oh. 
And basically, there's another producer in the room who was like, they're going to see through this. Like, he's too scared. She was kind of fighting on his side. Yeah, yeah. So they called Mira Servino, the star of the film, uh-huh. who's also in the Toronto Hotel. And they agreed to meet in the lobby. And it was Guillermo, Bob Weinstein, and this producer. And they have Guillermo uh, come forward and say, like, you know, I can't hack it. I don't have it in me. I'm going to leave the production. And Mira Servino saw through this yeah. and just started shouting at Bob Weinstein. Saying, yeah. Like, you fucking asshole. You're doing this to him. If he leaves, I leave. And your film is fucked. And I don't care what you do to me. Wow. And, like, re- like stood her fucking ground in the middle of a hotel lobby and yeah. was not going to take this bullshit because she saw through it. Well, from what I understand, she only came aboard because Guillermo showed her his notebooks. And his vision was clear. And eventually she uh, got her then-boyfriend, Quentin Tarantino, involved. Really? Of course, the Miramax darling. And he was calling Bob. He was calling Harvey. And was basically like, what is so bad about this that you have to make him leave the project? Yeah, yeah. And um, apparently they gave Guillermo a weekend yeah. and said, fine, one last shot. You cut together what you have and you send it to us in New York and we're going to review it. So apparently it was a screening room with Bob and Harvey and I guess maybe a couple other people. They watched what they had and apparently Harvey turned to Bob and said, I don't see what's so bad about this. Hmm. And Bob acquiesced and he got to finish it. I think there was more tampering and like Guillermo del Toro has gone on record saying, you know, different shots were added in. And so it was not a pleasant production no. for anyone. It wasn't a positive experience. But I do love to think of like Mira Sorvino just going to town on one of the Weinsteins and just standing her ground. And I have tremendous respect for her for that. I have respect for that mental image, um, but that blowout definitely hurt her. Oh, yeah. Um, and so like with the resulting film, is that the hill she wanted to die on, you know? Well, she died on the Guillermo del Toro hill. Yeah. And that's a good hill to die That's on. a good hill. I wish he would have, I don't know, maybe he could have, I don't know. I miss her. Where's it? What's going on? Uh, she's doing a lot of TV yeah. and some like stuff like that. Um, but if you you know remember, 1997, she had Mimic come out and Romeo and Michelle's High School. Was reunion. that the same year? Same year. Wow. Do you want to talk about like 180s of characters? I think she's great. I wish she'd do more. Yeah. And you know, I think maybe Caramel should um, call her. I didn't know she was ever hooking up with Quentin Tarantino. Oh yeah. Now let's talk about the short story upon which this is based. Yes. Which you sent me, and uh, you were like, yeah, the formatting kind of fucked up, but uh, you should be able to get through it. I did not. It hurt my brain. So help me out. Take me through it. So Mimic is a short story by Donald A. Walheim, and it was released in 1942 as part of a kind of creepy magazine. And it's actually, I think, quite a brilliant short story. And I will link the site that I found uh, in the show notes, and maybe the formatting won't bug you as much. To be fair, you're an editor. I get it. You know, it's distracting. (laughs) So Mimic, the short story, is about a narrator who works uh, in a museum as a curator and he deals a lot with like bugs and exhibits of bugs and he talks kind of similarly to how Susan talks in the film about how insects interact with each other building societies and, and how that all works. It's kind of interspersed with these recollections from his childhood of this man in black mm-hmm. who lived in uh, his apartment building kind of down the hallway from him and all these kind of strange things that this man would do and like he would just kind of appear and just wander through the hallway very quickly and avoided women and all of these kind of like women would make him freeze up right yeah and 
And um, at the end, it is revealed that the Man in Black died. And when they died, they discovered he was actually an enormous insect yeah. living among them. Uh-huh. And I actually thought that was very chilling and quite strangely subtle yeah. in some ways uh-huh. and very evocative. So. It's kind of uh, Kafka. Yeah, yeah. Remember, perhaps. Like, really reminded me of like Russian short stories. I couldn't really get my head around what his problem with women was. My thinking was, you know, I'm no entomologist, but I do have a theater degree. <laughs> <laughs> You're more than qualified and to talk about that theater degree. I probably Googled somewhere. In fact, uh-huh. I know I did for this episode. Okay. Um, that uh, many like insect types breeds, uh-huh. whatever they are, the female of the species are often very predatory. So like they right. mate, and then they're like, I'm going to fucking stab your head in. Yes. As women should do. Uh-huh. Um, that was maybe my takeaway. Okay, maybe okay. Maybe it's like he doesn't want to mate because he doesn't want to die. Yeah, the insect world does have a complicated relationship with women now that you mention it. Mm. That's interesting. But let's talk about insects. Okay. And let's talk about Guillermo del Toro's fascination with insects, mm. which is like a recorded known thing. Did you check out his exhibit? when it was here in town. So his At Home with Monsters exhibit has toured, uh, I think it did a couple of locations in the U.S. before it came up to Toronto. But I remember there was a whole section devoted to his fascination with insects, with his like rare specimens, weird factoids about bugs. And I also, I have a hardcover compilation of his notebooks and stuff, his uh, Cabinet of Curiosities book. I'll link that in the show notes. And did you consult that for this? Oh, good, good. Good, good. Anyway, so I had a look through there. He's got all these notes about mimic, about evolution being on the side of bugs, um, and the idea of a creature trying to imitate something that's utterly alien to its own nature, the fact that bugs are devoid of emotion. They're just, quote, true living automatons of nature. And that's a really interesting theme, because obviously, like, you know, these bugs are, they touch upon that in the movie. They don't go as deeply into it as I would have liked, but they touch upon that, how bugs have their own ecosystem that almost have their own nature that is separate from other species and very well adapted to survive life on Earth, let's say. So obviously the name of the superbug being the Judas breed has religious implications, uh, but there are others which I would like to talk about. Oh, please, former Catholic, let's. Let's talk about locusts. Yes. Who not only have a religious connotation, but a connection to plague and doomsday narratives. Now, locusts, if you're not sure exactly what they are, there's a species of grasshopper that have a swarming phase. And that's literally the only distinction between a locust and a grasshopper is that the locusts have this propensity under certain conditions to swarm and grasshoppers don't. And under these certain conditions, such as extra lush, vegetation following drought, I think. You know, this is all speculative. If locusts do decide to swarm, they can really, really fuck shit up. They can strip fields very quickly and devastate crops so badly that entire civilizations have perished due to famine or have had to migrate to avoid starvation. And as a result, plagues of locusts have been mentioned in historical records since prehistory. They've shown up on tomb walls of ancient Egyptians. They're mentioned in the Iliad, the Mahabharata, the Bible, and the Quran. So that is all of the major world religions, guys, had a beef with locusts at one point or another. Now, the human race initially got them under control with pesticides, but I discovered that there are other methods to control locusts, such as biological pest control, which is when humanity interferes with a species by manipulating the natural environment, such as introducing a natural predator. So what happened in this film isn't all that divorced from the kind of shit that we've pulled in real life. So basically, F 
Murray Abraham should have like calmed the fuck down. Basically, part of this film, everything I have to say in this episode essentially boils down to that salient point. Great. (laughs) Now, to bring it back to religion, according to Jewish tradition, the Passover story deals with Moses telling the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go free, and the Pharaoh kept refusing. And so God would punish the Pharaoh by visiting these plagues on Egypt. He had 10 plagues. And each time, the Pharaoh would promise to set the slaves free, and each time, he'd renege on the promise. And so God would dish out another one. And so the 10 plagues are turning water into blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, then darkness, and then the killing of firstborn children. And that's where the Pharaoh was like, that's enough. Yeah, it sounds like a hell of a weekend. You can have my livestock, you can give me boils, but uh, save the kids. And scholars have long theorized about these plagues. Um, A theory that I saw was that volcanic activity might have turned a river red and caused frogs to leap out of acidic water, and that would also account for hail, acid rain, which might cause boils, livestock dying from bad water, and a surplus of insects, etc. So there's a possible historical explanation, but these plagues, like locusts, are forever kind of tied to judgment of God and doomsday. And so Mimic, we're dealing with cockroaches, which are obviously better suited for modern cinema and that they're very common pests of the urban areas. And they also exhibit swarm behavior and collective decision making. So if you thought they were gross, you're right. And uh, you were right to be scared of them because holy shit, if they decide to organize against us, we are capital F fucked. (laughs) Well, there was something in the short story, uh, a line that really jumped out at me that I thought was quite interesting. When the narrator is talking about the man in black, he describes him as he was a sight from some weird story out of old lands. Uh-huh. And that kind of made me think of colonization. Oh. Um, and there is actually a theorist by the name of Homi K. Baba, and I'll link a little bit about him in the show notes, and he had a lot to say about mimicry and colonization. Okay. So, so mimicry for him equals presence. When those who have been colonized take on the culture of colonization, Colonizers. So mm. when, you know, England is colonizing you yeah. and you all of a sudden start drinking tea. Mm-hmm. This, again, I'm doing this off the top of my head, guys. So uh, take that with a pinch of salt. Um, but he really saw mimicry as a form of safety camouflage. That if people who were being colonized could kind of indoctrinate themselves enough into the like general populace so that they weren't as obvious as quote unquote other, yeah. there's a better chance of survival. Oh, sure. It's performative assimilation, I guess. And like, I mean, that makes sense. where else do you think of as a huge immigrant hub than New York City? Right. Ellis Island, that's where people come through, certainly did for, you know, decades mm-hmm. of finding a new way of life. And there is the whole like naturalization process and things like that. So I think there is this kind of layer to the film mimic that actually has to do with subterranean kind of uh, ways of being mm-hmm. and the layers of being and the classes of being. Yeah. Um, you know, it's quite telling that when the insect mimics itself, uh, which seems to have been really informed by Del Toro's drawings in his notebook, uh-huh. it's the figure of like a man mm-hmm. in a long trench coat, yeah. which is in some ways very innocuous, but it's also speaking to a certain set of class. Right. It's not someone that would seem terribly out of place in most settings. Yeah. I'd like to think that I'd be able to identify a giant cockroach in a trench coat on you the You think so? Toronto and then one subway. of them is carrying you down a subway track. <laughs> 
and ultimately, I think what the terror of the short story is and the potential terror in the film is about is not that the man in black was an insect. It was that he was passing as human. Okay. And I think that's what the film wants to do, but it doesn't quite get there. Uh, and I think that's because of a lot of interference and, you know, visions not being realized because I, I think there is that sense of, you know, insects, like big fucking scary insects with sharp pointers. That's scary. Yeah. But something living among us, something yeah. just kind of seemingly slightly odd, just outside of our periphery that is existing among us is far more troubling to our kind of state of being. Yeah. I mean, it's a weensy bit racist, too. I mean, obviously cockroaches and rats kind of have that association with it, that when they're likened to immigration, you know, like the rats that came off Dracula's ship, the rats well, that came off all those ships. And I think that's where this film kind of becomes a bit problematic is because in the original vision that Del Toro had, mm -hmm. it was certainly from my reading going to be a lot more similar to something like I Am Legend. They are uh, the next stage of evolution. Yeah. You know, I think it's actually, it's a bit sad to me that the film doesn't linger on that point in the film where Susan is dissecting the insect they have in that subway car. Yeah. And she says, these are lungs. Yeah. You know, that's not something she engineered. That's not something part of it. Del Toro talks about the fear of God choosing the insects yeah. over humanity. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that theme is just kind of like bubbling beneath the surface and yeah. it doesn't really go there. Um, in that way in the film that the kind of film we have is presented, it does veer towards a more racist kind of copacetic view of the world mm. rather than a more radical, challenging view of the world. And yeah. I don't say this as a mark against anyone involved in the production. I think it was a director with a really brave vision and then the studio kind of tracking and back and clawing it back to the point where it's just kind of like a mid-level thriller. Okay, yeah. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I want to talk more about that. But in the meantime, I've got to say that I was pretty impressed that this film dared off those charming specimen collecting children. Yes, the wee street urchins. I did not expect that. And for Guillermo's great, um, he's not afraid to off kids, but they're always so heartwarming and they're always so, you know, like we see through their eyes. And these kids were just kind of dispatched really fleetingly. Like, I think every time I've watched this film, I've been like, oh, yeah, those kids are going to make it in the end and have a snappy comeback, but I feel like they're just kind of brushed off to the side. Their death is kind of unceremonious. Yeah, I did actually contribute something to um, a book called uh, The Supernatural Cinema of Guillermo del Toro back in like 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually reread my chapter for this and I, I talk a bit about Mimic. Don't don't read that chapter, guys. It's not great. It's okay. It's not great. But now kind of going back and thinking about the use of children in this film and, and del Toro utilizes kids a lot. Oh, yeah. In his films. Um, He's a childlike man. He is. That sense of wonder is so important to him, and I think that's why he's drawn to children, not yeah. in a bad way. And, and they're a great, like, vessel into the film, and I think the kind of bait-and-switch with the two street kids and then Chewie is a really interesting one, and I think it speaks a lot to class. And um, in the director's cut, which, again, it only adds about seven minutes. Yeah, that's what um, I've heard. Where are those it's minutes? Not, it's a bit when um, Peter, who is uh, Susan's husband, who's the director of the CDC uh -huh. uh, in New York is, you know, meeting with Josh Brolin and they're investigating the death of the priest and, you know, all the people who've been kind of human trafficked through this fake church. And there's a bit more about the kind of community and the elements of human trafficking and 
Yeah, again, super loaded aside that is just kind of like, yeah. and moving on. And there's actually, like, a lot of those scenes I wish had just been left in. Yeah. They're actually, they just help flesh out that world a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the theatrical cut, it's kind of glossed over very quickly. Okay. But certainly one of the things that Josh Brolin is mentioning in those scenes um, and Del Toro talks about is he wanted it to be more of the um, the Judas breed were very godlike. And so the mole people in the subway systems worship them because they would do their bidding and the Judas breed didn't kill them, you know, and they would kind of flock to these huge godlike insects and pray to them, ah. which is really, really interesting. But there's like kind of a brief mention of mole people in the subway systems or the abandoned subway systems. Well, they just they looked talk- like homeless. Yeah. But Josh Brolin talks about, you know, some of the signage that they see. And yeah, like, that's yeah. a marking of that. Right. Um, and then there are no mole people in this area, uh-huh. inferring that the Judas breed have They disappeared, them. right. Yeah. So these two kids who are kind of selling these little bugs and specimens and Susan is, you know, being very kind to them and offering them a bit of money to help them out. They bring her a baby Judas breed. Mm-hmm. And that's where her kind of spidey sense starts to go haywire. Which I'm glad you mentioned because when it bit her, I was like, oh, no. Now she's going to this and this and this and that. It's a red herring. Yeah. She does not become a bug. No. Nor acquire bug superpowers. Ugh. Climb walls and shit. That would have been cool. Become resistant to nuclear radiation. <laughs> That's a Marvel movie I'd watch. Mira Sorvino is like bug lady. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, so these street kids are dispatched with rather quickly and quite viciously. And we never hear of them again. We never encounter their bodies. There's no Susan going like, oh my God, it's those kids. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no sense of it. And I think in that lack, that emptiness of space where they once existed, there is a bit of a class commentary on mm-hmm. there. Maybe not intentional, but it is that people of lower classes can and often do disappear. And a larger society doesn't notice. And I like, there is that shot in the film when Susan is kind of underground and she's trapped and she's screaming up at the grates Mm -hmm. saying, help me. And no one does. Mm -hmm. And then I also think Chewie is a very interesting character. Let's talk about Chewie, not Chewbacca. Chewie. So he is an autistic character and he kind of gets in with the Judas breed because he can click spoons and mimic their kind of clicking patterns. Yes. And they take him because he sounds like one of them. And they're like, hey, brah, come with us. It's cool down here. And that's it. Well, yeah. But I think there is, and this is what I talked a little bit about in my chapter, is the notion of the good parent and the right parent. Okay. Let's go there. Manny, Mm -hmm. who's his... so I always assumed it was his father. Yeah, father or but grandfather. Then I've seen, like it's his grandfather, caretaker. So anyway, Chewie's caretaker, Manny. Yep. Lovely man who uh, seems to really care about Chewie, uh-huh. takes some shoe shining with him because school can't teach him anything. And he is what I would term a good caregiver, a good parent, a mm-hmm. good figure in a child's life. However, I think what this film suggests is he may not be the right caretaker. Okay. And I think you can see that because, you know, Chewie is autistic and it's maybe not the greatest presentation in all of film, but I don't think it's the most insensitive one. No. But the way he can communicate with the Judas breed and like the clicking, and he seems quite happy down there. He's clicking his spoons. He's communicating with them in a way that he seemingly was not communicating with man. 
many. Okay. So I think there is something to the insects, the Judas breed, represent a kind of bridge between Chewy and humanity. I felt like Chewy represented a bridge between the Judas breed and humanity. Like, to me, there's that, but he also represents the idea that certain traits or abilities or stuff that we might construe as disabilities that we devalue under our current social condition can be very important once the paradigm shifts. And, like, it reminded me of that character of Kazan in Cube. Oh, right. You remember? They were like, oh, he's such a burden because he can't this and he can't that. Like, we redefine who is useful and a valuable member of society when conditions change. And so, because I read it that way, I think I expected more of a payoff with Chewie's abilities to click and communicate. I thought he would be able to maybe elicit some mercy or, like, just kind of act as a go-between between those worlds, but it didn't really happen, and it got muddy. And, in fact, in the end, I feel like Chewie served a different purpose that I didn't much care for at all. No, it served to kind of reify a very heteronormative family at the end. 100%. Manny dies. Manny dies. Tragically. Yep. And then it's like when Susan and Peter are reunited at the end of the film, Chewie's just hugging them, and it's like, guess he's going home with you guys. Well, let's talk about that, because the more I thought about this film, the more I started to resent it. And I started to resent it on such a fundamental level that, you know, like in pouring over the literature and Guillermo del Toro's notes, I'm like, is this your fault? I don't want to put this on you because I love you, Guillermo, but this is, I don't like this. So in this heteronormative fantasy that occurs at the very end of the film, I was prepared for that. I was ready for it. I knew it was coming because I spent ages 10 to 13 watching the shit out of Mimic. Uh And I was like, okay, cool. He's going to hug. Then when I watched the director's cut, I was privy to a very, I would say, odd addition um, to the kind of seven minutes that are added into the film. So I guess kind of towards the end of the first third of the film, maybe almost halfway through, Susan Tyler takes a pregnancy test. Yes. It comes up negative, and it's inferred that she is really wanting to get pregnant. She wants to have a kid. She wants to start a family with Peter. That's what she wants to Mm -hmm. do. And it seems to be negative, and Peter hugs her and just says, well, keep trying. It's like, all right, calm down, Peter. But uh, infertility is hot. And that's where the theatrical cut kind of leaves and the characters go on with the rest of the film. Uh In the director's cut, uh, Mira Sorvino leaves, and then later Peter looks down into the trash can, as one does, pulls out the pregnancy test, and sees that it's positive, and that this silly woman just didn't wait long enough. That's me editorializing. And then, in the last moment of the film, when... Susan and Peter are embracing because they thought that each other was dead and they're so fucking happy that they're alive and uh-huh. Chewie is alive and he's hugging them too. Uh-huh, uh-huh. There's this very bad ADR where he says, we're going to have a baby. Ew. And it is fucking horrifying. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting take because I think in my read of the film, there's so many parallels between our human characters and the Judas breed. And one of them being that Susan, who is able to create a certain type of life, is unable to reproduce seemingly within her own body or hasn't been able to so far. Whereas the Judas breed are able to produce at rampant speeds where, you know, they were not designed to. And then so I think this kind of final moment of you're going to have a baby. Guess humanity is not to remove from nature after all. Well, that is 
interesting. I don't know if it solves all my problems. It actually makes me wonder, like, you, you didn't at all get the sense that Susan read the test correctly and perhaps lied to Peter. No. Because that's an interesting twist. And she was like, I think my husband is secretly an asshole. Well, just maybe I don't want to have a baby under no, these circumstances. No, because remember she was doing that thing in the mirror where she's, like, looking at her belly and, like, pushing it out. Oh, I think I repressed that out of literal and legitimate horror. Andrea, some people want to have babies. Well, I want to talk more about Not that. people in this room. But I want to talk about Susan Andrea? creating life. Andrea? What? They're going to have a baby. No. <laughs> I would rather be a giant cockroach. But let's talk about creating life. Let's okay. talk about playing God. Let's talk about the Frankenstein trope, which is fundamental horror 101. We've done episodes on Frankenstein. We have done episodes dealing with this Frankenstein trope. But just to recap, in Frankenstein, we've got a doctor who creates life out of his own hubris. He does it because he can without really considering whether or not he should. And then with this horrible murderous monster on his hands, he contemplates whether that monster should have the same right to live as any other creature or organism. And the monster certainly thinks that he should. And the reason why that trope is so enduring in horror fiction is because there's no answer. It's a classic philosophical dilemma about the intrinsic value of life. Now, I just, I find it so disappointing that Mimic sets up all these set pieces in this direction and never goes there in any meaningful way, despite Guillermo's little religious influences. Like here, we've got Susan who actually, she created the Judas breed. And her now husband, Peter, they weren't husband and wife when yeah. all that thing happened. Now it's her husband. Now she wants a baby so badly, but her biggest contribution to the world, her greatest creation, where she actually saved the world for a period of time, isn't a human child. It's an entire species that's thriving to the point where it might take over the earth. And without so much as a moment's hesitation, she decides that it must be eradicated. There is zero effort to contain it, to communicate with it, to save it, to return to the lab and study like maybe a montage where she's agonizing up all night looking for another solution. It's slash and burn. This is my monster and I don't want it. And then after this whole ordeal, what does she come out with? The child that she always wanted, whether it's Chui or whether it's this um, embryo cut. that came out. Yeah, yeah, the director's cut. His only real purpose without any payoff to all this is his communicative ability with the bugs. His only real purpose was to complete Susan in the end by giving her the one thing that was missing from her happy happy marriage and successful career. It's the same narrative pitfall as aliens, mm -hmm. that mom might be a badass survival scientist, but she's still a woman, and I'm fucking over it. And so, like, I was getting all fired up about this, and then I was like, okay, I gotta go to Guillermo del Toro's notes because, you know, he loves children and he loves women and it's all fine, right? And then there's this sheet where he's got this jotted down handwritten note. Did you see this? One of the, It says, I should have started when I was younger. She's 30! Exclamation mark. Like, there's so many different things that that line could mean, and I don't like any of them. And I don't like this film. <laughs> because that's ultimately always where it takes me. That if, if women create monsters, they're monsters, and if men create monsters, they're huge philosophical moral dilemmas about playing God. Well, I agree with that. Thank you. I do agree with that, and I hear you, and I see you. I do agree completely. Mimic is a Frankenstein story. It is suffused with Susan Sontag's imagination of disaster, which is a fear of destruction of civilization. Mm -hmm. And it is not just the end of the world for villagers who are fearful of the monster. 
but for the world itself. Uh-huh. That is what they talk about in the film. You know, the New York subway system connects to Amtrak, which connects to the rest of the continent, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. It will spread so quickly and so easily. And I think what this kind of does is it really pits this notion of humans versus insects in a really interesting way. Whereas we as humans have individualized our lives so much we have compartmentalized ourselves so we can hide ourselves away in our homes, in the suburbs, in our apartments, wherever we are, and not notice these huge six-foot fucking bugs walking around, uh-huh. whereas these bugs can work together and foster a fucking community and wipe us out. Yeah. If it weren't for Jeremy Northam and his fucking fire thing. And I wish it went there. I feel like Guillermo wanted it to go there. He, he all For all his talk of God favoring the insects and favoring an insectile, which is to say communal, cooperative, automatonic way of living, that's so, so interesting. And what a fucking missed opportunity. Well, that was his original ending, is they were going to get to the end of encountering all the Judas breed, and there was going to be one who I think looked like kind of an, an albino man, almost, and Susan was going to walk up to it, and it was just going to say, leave, inferring that they are evolved enough to speak, uh-huh. they are fucking coming for us, Yeah, or they, they might us, be among us now, or they want us the fuck out of their way. We should get the fuck out of their way, I think, but I think we're going to talk about that more with the next film. So if Dr. Susan Mira Sorvino Tyler was designing the Judas breed to wipe out this kind of generation or, you know, version of cockroaches to cure Strickler disease or at least prevent it from reoccurring, I think if anything, this film kind of attempts to point its pincer at the fact that humanity has become the cockroaches, that we are the ones designed to be wiped out. Mm. And that is where we see plagues occurring throughout history, is when overpopulation happens, Uh when urban density happens. You know, it's there's a reason why, and we're going to talk about it soon, that urban areas are not fucking safe for plagues, zombie apocalypses, whatever the fuck is going to happen due to density. And it's like nature is kind of coming back and saying, you've gone too far. Uh We're going to check you. This film doesn't quite get there. It's a crying shame. It wouldn't bother me so much if it didn't have so much potential to say so much more to me. And, you know, like I said, it's it's something that the director's cut complicates but doesn't resolve in my view. And uh, I don't care to see this film ever again. (laughs) I'm totally going to watch this film. I fucking love this film. It's dumb and problematic. Tonight as soon as you get home. But again, it's one of those things when you watch it too many times as a kid, it's just part of you. Yeah. And that's cool. There's a lot of meat here to chew on, and we have chewed the fat, but uh, now it's time to chew some different fat. Let's fast forward to 2016 for The Girl with All the Gifts. Hello, Dr. Caldwell. Hello, Melanie. Morning, class. Good morning, Mr. Once upon a time, there was a woman. The most beautiful and amazing woman in all the world. No, you just touched her. Watch. Please don't do that. They're only children. Stop it! 
day, she was attacked by a monster. But then the girl came running up and killed it. And the woman said, Melanie! You are my special girl, and I'll never let you go. She saved me, and you're still afraid of her? Yeah, and you should be too. I am producing a vaccine, and she is the main ingredient. What am I? Hope. That's what you are. I just want to live. Everyone wants that. She loves you. What the hell is this? The world is falling apart. Yeah! You can save people, Melanie. Save everybody. Oh my God. What did you do? Set in a post-apocalyptic future where the population has been decimated by a deadly fungus, the world is now ravaged by hungries, better known to people like us as zombies, ravenous flesh eaters who pass on their sickness through bodily fluids. The remnants of humanity are in search of a cure. The film opens in a compound where children are being overseen at gunpoint by military when they're not being educated or studied. These children, we learn, are neonates. Their mothers were infected by the fungus while they were in utero, resulting in a liminal state of half-human, half-hungry. One such neonate, Melanie, is an exceptionally gifted girl who shares a bond with her teacher, Helen Justineau. When the compound is overrun by hungries, Melanie escapes with Justineau, Dr. Caldwell, and a couple of soldiers. On their travels, they find that the fungus has mutated past the human incubation stage and has produced these tree-like growths containing seed pods. After Melanie faces off against a pack of feral neonates, Caldwell tries to convince her to sacrifice herself to save humanity for a cure. Instead, she decides to release the fungal spores into the atmosphere and rallies the feral neonates. Justino, who survives the environment in a portable lab, now teaches a new generation of students who are no longer captives, but the future of humanity, such as it is. It's a big story. It is. It really builds a huge universe. I, I, I struggled with this um, synopsis to kind of include all of the nuance of what's going on. Well, definitely it borrows a lot from Greek mythology, which it absolutely calls back to itself mm-hmm. um, in terms of world building, um, the kind of dynamics of power that are at play. And it's a really interesting film. And it's a film that I think in many ways had a lot of buzz when it came out. I think deservedly so. I really like this movie. And it kind of falls in a really interesting space of what I would call YA horror or okay. young adult horror. Uh-huh. Um, it's not especially gory. No, it kind of it is a coming of age story mm. through horror as told through a young adult or a child. Mm-hmm. And I think this film, from its opening moments, its opening seconds, does a really good job of focusing on almost all of this film being told through Melanie's perspective. 
perspective. Mm-hmm. And especially that opening sequence in the military base, you know, we don't know what's happening until, you know, we gain more information through Melanie's world expanding. Mm-hmm. But we get a very strong sense of who she is and that in spite of her oppressive situation, she has uh, really held on to civility. She has very good manners that she always employs, no matter how mean everyone is to her, and she displays a very high intellect. Well, and I think that's interesting when we talk about manners in a kind of societal context, because she asks, you know, at one point, when Miss Justina was talking about Pandora's box, and she says something like, well, there's nothing bad down here, is there? Because she doesn't know what else is out there. Right. And I think that is such a powerful statement uh-huh. of, you know, you are the product of your environment, but there is something very special about Melanie, that she is kind and she understands, like, please, thank you, all of those different things. There's something innate about her. That's right, yeah, because when you think of institutionalization, and certainly in the context of the institutionalized Native, the institutionalized Black who have been in and out of uh, social support programs and justice programs, it tends to be a corruptive force. And so for Melanie to kind of retain that old world civility throughout it, I think really just uh, builds her as a character right away. It's actually more painful to watch it in so many ways because, you know, you want her, you know, because you as an audience member are getting, I certainly did, I would get angrier the more I knew about her status and where she was Uh uh, within this world and the way she was being treated. You know, she had no reason to be that nice to everyone and yet she was. Yeah. I I certainly get the sense of like that had to do with like the education and what Miss Justina was teaching her and what she was able to distill from like, you know, stories and learning and, you know, apply it. Yeah, well, she's made a conscious decision to be like, I'm being treated as an animal. I don't know why, but I am choosing to be kind and I am choosing not to be how they're treating me. And uh, I think that's really powerful and poignant. And I think perhaps as a starting point to get into this film is we have to talk about race. We have to talk about the racial identifications within this film because racial identification is, as we've mentioned on this podcast, it is always loaded. And for me, it goes right back to Night of the Living Dead. Mm -hmm. And to say that Dwayne Jones just gave the best audition to play Ben, well, that may or may not be the case. However, the result is that Ben, as a racially loaded character, it made that film. It made that film the revolutionary rallying cry that it became. And I think that's true of this film as well, especially when you consider that the character wasn't written as such. Now, this film was directed by Cole McCarthy, who I looked at his filmography. It's a lot of TV, a bunch of Peaky Blinders, some Doctor Who. I think this was his second feature. But this was based on a book by one M.R. Carey. And from what I was able to glean, the plot line was very similar to the source material, except that Melanie is described as, you know, having a brilliant intellect and all that, having long hair and very fair skin. Not only Caucasian, but very fair. And Justino, on the other hand, is depicted as a woman with very dark skin and very long black hair. Now, I haven't read the book. Uh, I'm just going by the synopsis that I've read. And But based on these descriptions and the fact that M.R. Carey is a white male, uh, he was 55 years old when this story was published, I'm inclined to assume that Melanie's pallor is meant to represent a sense of purity, while Justino, being a dark-skinned woman, is unique 
physically able to look past her condition at the human inside, presumably because of her own racial presentation. That's a lot of speculation and that's a lot of inference. Uh, but like I said, inverting this dynamic has real implications for the film, both good and bad, in my view. Uh, while it makes Melanie that much more powerful as a revolutionary, especially toward the end of the narrative, Justino is not only whitewashed, but she becomes something of a white savior role. Yeah, I think there is a lot of complications that come with that kind of inverse. But I think ultimately what I take away from the film is the importance of representation. Mm. Um, you know, when we talk about speculative fiction, weird fiction, Afrofuturism, there is a sense of we need to have characters who embody these, you know, new ways of being and new ways of living that extend beyond our kind of um, homogenized patriarchal view of the world. Uh -huh. And, you know, whether the actress who plays Melanie, Sienna Nanua, came in and just, as she's incredible in the incredible. film, just knocked everyone's socks off and they were like, great, yep, that's Melanie. She's amazing. Yeah. You know, there is an intentional loaded weight that comes there. There is. And the film does a really interesting job of not calling attention to that. It's never mentioned, is never it? Never mentioned. I feel like she's conspicuous in that not only is she the only neonate of color, so to speak, but it's mostly boys. Mm -hmm. It's mostly white boys in her cohort. So she sticks out not only due to her fierce intellect and her outgoing gregarious nature, but for these reasons. Now, I should mention that there was a sequel slash prequel to the novel. It was called The Boy on the Bridge, uh, written by the same author. And it tells of the science military team who had inhabited that mobile lab prior to the events of The Girl with All the Gifts. And basically, this team drove around the countryside collecting samples, getting into arguments with one another, and contending with that dang pack of feral neonates. I found a really interesting Medium article. Again, like I didn't embark to read this entire novel, but I found an article talking about the problem with that book's epilogue. And at the end of Boy on the Bridge, the human survivors flee to a Scottish mountain where they survive until a pack of now adult neonates, led by Melanie, arrive. And she offers to help the doomed humans, even going so far as to have her followers cultivate grains for the humans, basically offering their labor to help these humans survive. And like having taken the world back from all of these oppressive institutions that used to dominate it. No, make the humans harvest the grains. Right? She's serving her oppressors. What? It's a really, really disappointing epilogue that I was just kind of like, well, won't be reading that. And I sure as shit hope they don't make a sequel to this movie. I don't think they will. My God. Right? And like these institutions that I'm talking about, like pre-apocalypse institutions are pretty clearly represented here. We've got science, we've got the military, we've got education, and there's many things I like about this film. I like how it annihilates the Bechdel test. I like that mm. Dr. Caldwell is a woman who is, you know... Glenn Close. She's Glenn Close. She's flawed, but she's fiercely committed to saving the human race. Mm -hmm. And you get a strong sense that she does love Melanie, but she also feels that Melanie would be best served to save the human yeah, race. Yeah, I don't get the sense that she's like evil. No. Is, is she's a, not a racist. No, she's not a... It's, it's almost like her handicap is pragmatism. That's right. And I think that is a legitimate critique of the scientific institution. And a very interesting one. And, and we've talked about structural functionalism on this podcast, which 
is the idea that the institutions that persist are the ones that society needs in some way, shape, or form. And I think this film has some interesting observations of that, particularly in the role of Parks, mm. who, you know, we don't like him at first because he's a bully. And no matter how polite and kind Melanie is to him, he's just going to point a gun at her and be very suspicious. And he admits later that, you know, I wasn't always a soldier. I became what I needed to be to get us through this. And uh, I really appreciated his sympathetic arc. But um, in the end of this movie, I think it's hard to point to any one institution as the villain. It's hard to point to any one party as the villain in this film, which is not only true in real life, but um, but also our society's biggest hurdle as we face the pandemic, mm-hmm. as we face Black Lives Matter and everything else that's all fucked up is we have to confront the fact that these institutions are all built to support a system in a certain manner. But if they no longer serve their purposes, they need to be rebuilt from the ground up. And I think that's where so much fear and anxiety comes into play, especially, you know, looking at our kind of current worldview, because if things need to be rebuilt, how do we replace them? What happens? What is that process? Uh Do we have the leaders in charge who are willing to do that? And I think, you know, certainly for Andrea and I, I'm sure for everyone listening, we all subscribe to the notion that things are really fucked up and we need to tear them down and rebuild them. And now's the time. We're on the precipice of so much change. There could never be a better condition to start fresh, but that's not what we're seeing happening. And I think for me, that is the most demoralizing thing of all of this. I'm more terrified now than I was in the beginning onset of this pandemic, just because the way winds are blowing, it's, it's not looking good. No, it's, you know, we realize in these situations how reliant we are on each other and how much we have to trust each other to do the right thing. And so I think that moment towards the end of the film when Caldwell is talking to Melanie about how she should give herself over to the experimentation mm-hmm. and like create the vaccine and it'll save Miss Justino. Yeah. And then when Melanie says, will you tell her what I did? I fucking cry. Oh every time. But it's such a heartbreaking moment. And I think of those moments when my stupid upstairs neighbor says that he's going to have a house party. And I'm like, oh my God, during a pandemic. And he's like, yeah, it's probably going to go all night, bro. Have a good night. And I'm like, oh my God. Your upstairs neighbor that I met last weekend? Yeah. Fuck him. I know. Point being, there are people in this world, like Melanie, who are trying to do the best and the right thing in this world. Yeah. And then there are people like my upstairs neighbor who are going to party. Who are essentially cockroaches in human clothing. Exactly. So, you know, obviously this film kind of stems from its literary origins, being a book. But this film also calls a lot of attention, especially in the opening scenes when Miss Justino is teaching them, towards storytelling and Greek mythology. And Melanie is always asking for a story. Uh And I think that is very telling because of the way we talk about storytelling within this podcast. And I'm sure many other podcasts do as well. But the notion that we learn things through stories. Yeah. We learn empathy. We learn other ways of being. We, we can dissect the world through hearing other stories. Mm-hmm. And the most predominant one is, of course, Pandora's box, which yes. Miss Justineau tells them very early on in the film. So essentially, Pandora's box is endless complications arising from a single miscalculation. And, um, you know, as a quick background on Pandora, the gods created her, giving her all of the good things that they had, like away with words, beauty, the ability to do pretty much anything. All the gifts. All the gifts. And Zeus, the head god. He's a fucker. He's a real fucking fucker. He gave her a box 
but it was like you can never open it. That was the deal. And that's how, like, the Greeks like to do it. It's like you get all this shit, but you can't do this one thing. Yeah. And that's how the Christians like to do it. And don't eat this apple. Yeah. But we know you're gonna because you're a woman and you're weak. But I'm sorry, go on. And, and I mean, Zeus did this essentially because of Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. And so this was his retribution because... Hey, why not? And why shouldn't I, women be punished for what men not? do? And so Pandora basically cannot resist temptation anymore and opens the box. And it releases all of the disease, hardship, everything terrible about our lives. Mm-hmm. It releases unto the world. And she closes the box in time to leave one thing inside. And that is hope. And that is why within Greek mythology, hope is left in the box because hope is the last thing to die within humanity. So we can live our whole lives with all this shit going on and we can say to each other, I hope things are going to get better. I hope things are going to change. I hope the police are abolished. I hope X, Y, Z, A, B, C. And what's interesting amongst all of this stuff is that the name Pandora can mean she who gives all the gifts and she who was given all the gifts. Okay. And I think this film asks you to kind of pick which side of that you're on. Right. So she's given all the gifts of this kind of societal way of being. She is polite. She's kind. She is smart. She's all the correct things that we are taught to be mm-hmm. within our society. However, she also has all of the gifts. She can give them. She gives them to the neonates, you know, who are stuck in central London. She has all these abilities to bring together a new world order. Yeah. And that is a very conflicting thing. She can give salvation to the remaining humans, but she chooses to give mm-hmm. that salvation to her own kind. And I think that's so interesting because my understanding of Pandora's box was just kind of a really, you know, your typical misogynist narrative of, ah, oh, chicks, man, they're so curious. They can't help but look where they're not supposed to look. And uh, I think it's really interesting that there's so much more to it, and this film really artfully employs that. Mm-hmm. It really complicates a lot of the ways we think of ourselves. Because we all think of ourselves as, I I think, ultimately, or we try to be good and kind and right and do the best at any given moment, much like Melanie does. You know, she's doing all the right things and being treated in such a way. And within the face of that, she's still trying to do that. Mm -hmm. And then the idea and the realization that she is the future and that everyone else should be subservient to her and the neonates is a really powerful one. It is. That, you know, for... Caldwell and Parks and everyone else, it's like their time is done. For a being that they treated like garbage, Mm -hmm. to have that kind of power to wield in one direction or another. And uh, yeah, it's deep stuff. It's a deep cut. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that occurred to me when I was watching this film Mm -hmm. is like, you know, the UK has a real thing about the apocalypse. Does like, it? Well, I always think 28 Days Later, um, Children of Men, mm-hmm. you know, there's a couple other um, films and lots of books that all deal with a very British sensibility about the world ending, even back to like Day of the Triffids and, you know, Village of the Damned and all of that. There is a sense that the UK has a notion that the world is gone. Okay. Why is that for an empire that... Because it's no longer an empire. Uh-huh. That is my take on it. I was trying to find 
some white guy to back yeah. me up on this, and none of them are going to fucking say it. So but in spite it, of all the colonization, they're spread. no longer the superpower they once were. Okay. And, you know, uh, that has a lot to do with America assuming a lot of power and a lot of presence on a world stage. Uh-huh. Uh, the Spice Girls could only do so much. They did a lot. They did a lot, but only so much. And I've seen more in, like, this kind of new millennial vision of the UK that is one that is in peril. It is one that is crumbling. Mm. Um, you know, going back to Children of Men, which I don't know if we'll ever get to talk about it on this show, but I would love to. I'm down. Oh, great. Okay, cool. Uh, there is such a sense of this crumbling infrastructure within the UK and all of these narratives that I've seen always kind of hold on to those last bastions of the institutions that we've talked about. Same in 28 Days Later with the Army, mm-hmm. things like that. It's those last gasps of yeah, power. Yeah. And, you know, certainly for myself, the daughter of a British man, and he's said to me so many times when I was growing up, there was always, he wanted to go back to the UK. He wanted to move back there. And, you know, my mom was down for that. And uh, one of the last times he went back, uh, probably 10 years ago now, he's been back since. But when he went back, he, he came back and we were talking and he was like, it's just not the same. He left in the 60s. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that's when you were starting to really see the structure of power changing okay. in some ways. Yeah. So it's not the same place it was. Huh. And I think a lot of British creatives and thinkers are realizing the UK in a really strange new way. And that's one that doesn't know how to be anything other than a kind of crumbling infrastructure. And that in turn led me to this theory about post-humanism, which I did not come up with. And some old white guys did. Yeah. It's fun. But essentially post-humanism is after humanism or beyond humanism. It is a philosophical perspective on how change is enacted within the world. Humanism perspective assumes humans had agency autonomy, consciousness, and intentionality in acts of change. Post-humanism assumes agency is distributed throughout dynamic forces which humans participate in, but we don't completely control them. Humans are part of a larger evolving ecosystem. We are self-centric in our way of thinking. We think about ourselves and our communities and our races and all of those really short-sighted things that humans like to do before considering larger impacts. You know, we can see that with global warming and essentially the world going, holy fucking shit, stop, please stop. And then I think some people, like I mentioned before, with plagues and everything kind of coming about at times of turmoil within humanity, a lot of people are looking at COVID like humanity has gone too far. Hmm. We we flew too close to that sun. And it's a reckoning in many ways. And it assumes that there are so many other things in control of this world rather than us. It doesn't matter that Donald Trump is the president. It doesn't matter that Justin Trudeau is the prime minister of Canada. The world will come for us Hmm. and it'll rectify how it needs to rectify. Okay. That's fucking grim. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to apply this to the notion of the abject. Okay. This I'm actually bringing in because of something that I did for our Patreon feed and we've got a series on the Patreon feed called Glossary of Gore where Andrea or I dissect a term And we just break it apart and we talk about what it means and the different ways it can be applied. I think we actually released one of those on the main feed recently. So um, you have a sense of what that's like. So I did one um, very recently on the abject. And the abject for me was always kind of an intimidating term. Like I kind of got it. I kind of didn't get it. Slippery one. It's a slippery 
everyone. And that's because it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. People have built their whole careers on talking about the abject and that's cool. And essentially the abject is anything that makes us go and anything that makes us cringe, anything that makes us feel gross or weird. And there is an intrinsic response to it, but then there's also a kind of conditioned response to it. Okay. So if I see your guts on the sidewalk, I'd be like, oh no, that's gross. Yeah. On a human physiological level. Level, because I'm like, that's my friend and she's probably dead. And oh no, but ew. There's a threat now. There's a threat. But then there's also, I think, a societal element to it that makes us conditioned to go like, ew, period blood. Mm. Ew, the word moist. Yeah, there's something there that is conditioned within us to dislike mm-hmm. and be fearful of certain things. Okay. And this is where I think the abject is really interesting because I think there is a kind of intrinsic element to the abject and then there is the conditioned part of it. So the abject refers to the reaction and not its cause? The abject refers to the reaction and most of the time the abject occupies a space that threatens a boundary, most often life or death. Okay. So if I see a corpse, yeah. that's really upsetting for me because it's something that looks alive or it could be alive because mm-hmm. it looks a lot like me, but I know it's dead. And so that makes me recoil. And often we need these boundaries and we need these objects to establish what life means. And we right. establish ourselves by rejecting what we are not. Okay. It's so, drawing that line. Exactly. So I think in this film, Melanie is the abject. She's treated like the abject. Everyone is fearful of her. They're kind of disgusted. They call her an abortion. They call all the neonates abortions. They do all those things. And Melanie, I think, is actually the most transgressive form of the abject because she is the future. She is not for the humans. She is something new. She is something evolved. And in fact, Caldwell actually says at one point, you're not like me. You're not like anything that's ever existed. And that is such a powerful moment because Mm -hmm. it's a recognition and a denial of evolution, which is especially chilling coming from a scientist. A denial of evolution? Yeah. Not being able to say like, you're something new. Yeah. You're something new. We need to figure out what this is and support it. But I like, I need to harvest you so yeah. I can cure myself and like the people around me. An aberration. Yeah. An abject. Hmm. Oh, she's the literal manifestation of the gap between life and death, right? Like for the purposes of this film, you know, you've got the hungries and you've got people and it's hard to imagine space in between. And yeah. I feel like zombie movies have kind of tried to do that with, uh, you know, even Day of the Dead and Bub, mm-hmm. the weird sentient zombie. Well, what do we do with him? He seems like he can learn. And that was kind of more on the side of zombie, whereas Melanie is more on the side of human. Yeah, and I think the fact that it's a fungal infection mm-hmm. is really interesting, and the way that the hungries are kind of reabsorbed back into nature yeah. is that nature pushing itself within the urban landscape mm-hmm. uh, because they only see this kind of reabsorbing of human bodies when they get into what I assume is central London. Yeah. Huh. It's reminding me of Annihilation. I want to talk about that one day. Nature reclaiming civilization and just kind of like smashing with it in abject ways at first before taking over completely. Mm 
That's interesting. So, as a way to perhaps wrap up, it struck me that both the films that we talked about today, The Girl with All the Gifts and Mimic, refer to this blocker gel. Yes. Did you catch that? Yes. And this is something that is applied to the skin to mask one's identity as a species, as a way to kind of defer humanity in a sense. In both films, survival of humanity depended on their ability to pose as something other than human, something other than a threat. And to me, this is a clear indication that there's nothing intrinsically right or good about humanity, which took me on quite a rabbit hole that I would like to take you on, Alex, oh, if you're game. do. Let's talk about human extinction. Oh, yeah. Hot. <laughs> now, both of these films tackle this idea, and they both, in different ways, kind of beg the question of what or who or how much of humanity should survive. And I feel like they take very different tacks on that. I feel like Mimic ultimately lands on humanity at all costs, whereas Girl with All the Gifts is maybe it's someone else's turn. And to get back to a line of inquiry we approached early in this episode, I have personally decided not to procreate for a number of reasons. And among them is the belief that for me, to bring another human being into my gene pool, my material circumstances, and my lifestyle is not a good idea. And I think that's something that's for everyone to decide for themselves. But something I feel strongly about is detaching the subject of procreation and morality. Mm. The idea that procreating can be intrinsically right or wrong. Like, if you have kids because you want them, because you want to carry forth your family name and lineage, because you want to help perpetuate the species, or maybe you're just bored. Maybe you always wanted to be a parent. Maybe you wanted to experience that kind of love that the poets talk about. Whatever. All those reasons are fine, but they're all born out of your personal desire. It's not a moral decision. It's a selfish one, and that's fine. I think there's a lot of shame and stigma around selfishness, but I think you want what you want. And I think in order to deflect the idea of selfishness, people are like, well, it's because it's right. It's not. It's not right or wrong. The idea that having children is morally or intrinsically good is something that's often wielded against women's reproductive rights and overall agency as human beings, and so I take issue with that. Have kids if you want, but don't try to tell me it's a moral equation. I disagree, and that's a hill I'll die on. Now, there are indeed some people who believe that reproduction is intrinsically bad, and this is known as anti-natalism, and there is a whole dark world of philosophy and indeed a social movement around this subject. I took a peek. It's a dark place, so I don't know if I'd recommend it, but I actually stumbled upon something called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, the V-H-E-M-T, which bears the following slogan, quote, May we live long and die out. I could not make this up. I will provide a link in the show notes. But basically, this website reads that phasing out the human species by voluntarily ceasing to breed will allow the Earth's biosphere to return to good health. Crowded conditions and resource shortages will improve as we become less dense. And so I think the bigger question when we approach this subject is, do we want the world to survive if it means we can't be in it? Do we give it over to the neonates and or the cockroaches? And I think that's a really poignant question to ask ourselves today, because as I mentioned before, we're on a precipice. Now we get to decide which institutions can be salvaged and which ones need to be torn down. And we know that COVID is hurting certain populations more than others. 
others. It's disproportionately hurting the black, indigenous, and other marginalized groups. And I don't foresee that changing, especially with the subject of schools reopening. Yeah. That fucks me up, Alex. It That's, really fucks me up. It scares me more than more than anything about this pandemic. I think I try hard to be optimistic, especially on this show, but um, it was one thing to get the world to take the pandemic seriously and have people singing on their balconies in Paris and Rome and shit. But reopening prematurely genuinely frightens me. People running out of emergency financial aid really frightens me. And another round of Trump for president really fucking frightens me. Mm-hmm. There's so much um, brick and mortar things to think about, to, to think about the wider picture of the philosophy of whether or not we should stop or at least slow down the direction that we're going. But um, I think now is kind of the time to refresh and um, kind of arrive at where we're going to arrive on that. I agree. You know, when we set out to do the Summer of Plague, we were like, cool, we're going to talk about these things in this way. It'll be a great way for us to kind of deal with it. And then we'll events have changed the conversation as they should, as they must, and have informed the things that we have picked in a different way. This would have been a different episode three months ago. Yep. And in the small thankfulness that I can have, I'm glad we're having the conversations we're having now. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that they are the tougher conversations because we don't have answers. We don't have those answers except to say that we want things to get better. There are ways for things to get better. We need the people we elect to to hold themselves accountable and do what's right. We need the police to stop taking people off the street for peacefully protesting. We need a lot of aid and a lot of calm and a lot of resources to be distributed among communities that desperately need it. And these films show us that there is a way forward where the Weinsteins fuck with you and everything explodes at the end and everything kind of goes back to normal and that's fine. And then there is a way where things change and they change in complicated ways. And maybe that makes some people less comfortable than they are now. And I think that's okay. Yeah. We need humanity more than ever. And I think for the longest time, that was a very specious term. And and we need to define humanity and whether or not humanity means caring for one another and looking out for one another, no matter what, at all costs. If that means the end of the economy, if that means the end of the police state, You know, that's something I'm all for. That's the side that I'm on. But humanity doesn't equal civilization. Humanity creates civilization. And we can rebuild this in any image that we want. And I know that kind of sounds lofty and it sounds a bit um, far-fetched because a lot of us are feeling very powerless. And there's a reason a lot of us are feeling very powerless is because there's a pandemic. And so we're not able to organize in the traditional way that we're used to. You know, we've got this wonderful resource in the Internet and we're using it to fight on Facebook over masks and Karens and memes and stuff like that. But I'm happy for the opportunity to use horror narratives to speculate. And, you know, it breeds introspective inquiry that is really important right now. Yeah. And I think something like The Girl with All the Gifts shows us that what we might now consider to be the abject is actually the way forward. Yeah. The things that scare us the most might be the things that save us. Yeah. Well, jeepers, guys. This wasn't meant to be a very uplifting episode. It wasn't. Right? <laughs> but here we are, and we're on it together. We really. are. I feel like I hear that less and less, less than at the beginning of this epidemic, but it's no less true, no matter how hard it feels. Yeah, take care of each other. Take care of your neighbors. Take care of the people who need it, and that's how we can all move forward. Be conscious, be careful, be safe. <laughs>
I mean, we're calling this episode The Cure, but uh, I think the cure isn't going to look like a vaccine and the cure isn't going to look like a resolution back to the nuclear family that we always wanted. It's not going to go back to normal. It's going to be a new normal, but we have the power to assess what that normal can look like and we need to wield that. And to that end, it being July, it being summertime, Alex and I are about to embark on our annual sabbatical, which is to say that we take August off in a sense. Yeah. So you might get something dropped in your feed. Maybe, maybe a little tidbit if we get bored. But there won't be a regularly scheduled Faculty of Horror episode in August because we typically take this time to kind of put our heads together, kind of reflect on the year, how things are going, where we're going with the podcast, changes we want to make, uh, goals we want to realize. And so we're going to be doing that. It's a great time to hear from you if you're so inclined to let us know how you're feeling about the show what it's doing for you, what it's not doing for you. Uh, we're coming up on the first anniversary of our Patreon. Many of you have jumped aboard and we want to thank you so much for that. The response has been really overwhelming and heartwarming and we want to keep that going. We want uh, everyone to be happy. We're really happy with it, but some feedback is definitely welcome. Absolutely. And that just means we have more time to prep for our September episode. Ooh! Which is going to be a doozy. It always is. Our back to school episode is like the facts back. Buckle up, bitches. Fact Street's back, all right. All right. We always like to kick off September with something really big and something you guys have asked for and something we want to do. And Andrea, I think, has forgotten what we agreed on. Of course I have, so, as custom. What we've done is we've kind of done an amalgam. We have done a film you guys would not fucking stop asking us about. And then we're also going to do a film that, frankly... You just really fucking want to do. And I think they work really well together. Oh, just tell me. No, it's so fun to keep you in suspense. Okay, so September. Your homework is Ari Aster's Hereditary. Oh, shit, yeah. Hereditary. We're finally going to fucking do it. Hereditary. And Adam McDonald's Pie Wacket. Wow. That's a good episode, yo. Yeah, it's going to be real weird when we talk about mothers. Am I sexual? No. <laughs> I think that was almost in harmony. We almost harmonized. I'm glad to get away from pandemic films for a second. We're going to talk about other evils of humanity. So, until Mira Sorvino gives you shit in a Toronto hotel lobby. Ooh. Office hours are closed. Don't let it go